Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on Dublab. And today, um, it's such a pleasure to be joined by highly acclaimed Bay Area sculptor and professor of arts, Linda Fleming. Linda, thank you so much for being with us. Well, it's delightful. Thank you. So Linda's held solo exhibitions all over the world, has had her work in major public and private collections, and taught in numerous U.S. universities. Linda is currently Professor Emeritus and former Dean at California College of the Arts, where she's taught sculpture for 30 years. As an artist, she formed part of the early Soho art scene, exhibiting early on in revered Manhattan galleries and also co-founded one of the longest running communes in the U.S., Linda's sculptures are meditations on the metaphysics of geometric forms, ephemeral ideas constructed in durable materials, and forms that generate other forms. So Linda, um, I know you're joining us today from, well, from Libre, from the, the commune that I mentioned. Yes, we are delightfully up here in the mountains. It's such a sanctuary, um, especially, well, every year, but this year, it's cool and green, and we just had a beautiful rain. I feel like I'm living on another planet. And you'll be staying there until September, October? Probably mid-October this year. Are, are there many other um, librarians around at the moment? Yes, summer is always a time where most people are here. Um, we have a number of households that occupy it, and almost everybody who's here has been here for Many years, since the first 10 years of the community being founded. So um, my neighbors are very old friends. And so this is this is the part where I say how we connected, <laughs> but which feels <laughs> kind of funny because, you know, I, I don't know exactly that point in time. I mean, so, you know, you and dad, my, my father and uh, Michael Moore, your partner, um, have been friends for a number of decades now, I imagine. Yes, since Michael was in college, and I think your father was 16, but he had, he was so brilliant that he just gave up on high school and was hanging around Stanford and made friends with all of the most interesting people there. Well, I mean... You and and Michael, for sure. <laughs> well, Michael, certainly. Um, I was not there. I was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And we will get to that. Um, but so, you know, one of my first memories, I think even of the US, it was the trip that, you know, mom and dad and Thea and I took out to, to Libre when I was, I think, five or six. And we stayed in your, you know, yours and Dean's geodesic dome. And that was where we had Christmas um, that year and it was just so magical and it imprinted so deeply and you know I thought wow if this is America I want more of it um, obviously that was a very specific view but I just remember feeling such freedom and magic from the environment and it, it was definitely a draw you know for me coming back to the states later on so um, I re do really remember that. I remember that trip all as well. Um, it was a wonderful snowy Christmas. We don't always have 
snowy Christmases. And we went sled riding and it was perfect to celebrate at the Christmas holiday because it was the mountains and the pine trees covered with snow. But that sense of freedom of just being able to walk out the door and go wherever you want is really extraordinary here. Well, and that's really the you know, I mean, Libre, it literally is the translation. And it's amazing that that is so encapsulated in the environment, you know, that you found such a perfect environment. You know, we were very lucky. We had no idea what we were doing. And we were very young. And we had no idea about land and the orientation and where the sun hits the land. And is it north facing or south? Or is it going to be um, in 10 feet of snow all winter long and we won't even be able to be here. We, we just really lucked onto this really amazing piece of property. And it's been, we've been here for 53 years now. Well, we're going to get more into that later on in the show. But just to start with, the show's called Orange Juice for the Years. Um, it's taken from a, a line by neurologist Oliver Sacks about the power of music, how deep that really goes. And that line is, you know, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I just want to know, what does that quote mean to you? Well, I think that rather than thinking about it as a, a palliative or something that cures me, music became a thing that drew me out of where I was and where I was living. It it was one of the first realizations that there was more than just the banal in the world, even though I came from a wonderful family. But just the the growing up in the fifties was very white bread and very um conservative. So hearing music, other kinds of music besides what was being normally played um, was extraordinary to me. I thought there are people out there, there are other thinkers, there are other people who feel that was very exciting to me. So it was orange juice for my path in life, I would say. Nice. And what else is a tonic in your life? Oh, many things. Uh, certainly making. I make, therefore I am. I love to make things. I love to draw. Be it when I was a small child, drawing was my ticket to any imaginary thing that I wanted. I used to be able to draw whatever it is I wanted and, and then could have it. A pony was one of those things, which was kind of impossible to have in the city when I was little, but I could draw them. Um, and that created this whole other world for me. The landscape is hugely important. Being able to be with other kinds of creatures besides humans um, is really, really important to me. So those are all things that keep me going. When things that shouldn't be taken for granted, given where we are as a human species at this point in time. So yeah, getting drawing life force, you know, from other sentient beings, I couldn't agree more. And and yeah, whether that's abalone, I was on a trip yesterday with, with abalone or, yeah. you know, the trees or, you know, whatever. It's just there's so much hidden in plain sight that I think we, we miss. 
um, because we now have so much to distract ourselves from it. Um, but, you know, art and nature really go hand in hand. Um, and that is so much what your work is about and why I think you're, you know, such a, a beautiful artist and beautiful human being. Um, so what was the first song that imprinted on you, Linda? Well, the first song that I remember was Bo Diddley playing Bo Diddley. It was being played by a disc jockey in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, named um, Porky Chedwick. And he was absolutely forbidden. We could not listen to him. We used to hide. And I only knew about him because my sister was older. I think I was 10 or 11 when I heard Bo Diddley. And it just made me feel like there was huge possibility in the world. It was so raw and wild. And the music was raunchy. And um, and the fact that it was forbidden made it so much more exciting. Okay, so let's take a listen to Bo Diddley's Bo Diddley. Go to the side, baby, diamond ring. If that diamond ring don't shine, he gonna take it to a private eye. And that was Bo Diddley by Bo Diddley. And that was the song that Linda chose as the first track that imprinted on her. And you said you were about 10 or so at the time? Yeah, 10 or 11. And just describe that scene. Do you remember, you know, where you were? Was it your sister who turned on the radio or showed you that, you know, particular station? Or, you know, what was the the scene? My sister was with her girlfriends on our front porch. And they had a portable radio and they were trying to keep it really low so my parents wouldn't hear. (laughs) And I used to hang out with them um, and drive them crazy because I was four years younger than they were. And that's a big difference. I was 11 and they were 15. But when I heard that song, I wouldn't leave them alone. I followed them everywhere as long as they'd have the radio with them. And you said that that was probably the first music or your encounter with music that was totally, you know, unlike anything you'd heard and and forbidden and sort of sexy. And was that from your parents? Like, were your parents quite conservative or was that just the, the times? Oh, it was that my parents and it was definitely the times. All music was on the radio. There were very few records or there were no real albums then in the early 50s there were probably some but there was no access to them you couldn't go to the store and buy them because you couldn't get to the store there were nobody had cars it was a very different time um so the the radio was the place for the music and it the most popular music was so horrendous um how much is that doggy in the window and um, shrimp boats are coming. I'm sure you, you never heard of those songs, but if you did, you'd be so happy to hear about Diddley. Um, and so you were born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, and you were just talking about, you know, your your sister. And so, what was what was that home life like for you? Was it just you and your sister and your parents? 
Yes. And then when I was 10, I had a brother, but he was so much younger than I that he was almost of another generation. My sister and I were pretty close. The four years were a lot, but 10 years was quite a lot. And by the time I was 19, he was nine. So, you know, when I was leaving home at 18, he he was just eight years old. So it was really just the four of us. But we, you know, we struggled. My parents had very little. My father worked in a factory. They both were victims of the Depression. Their dreams were dashed. And they didn't have that ability to just succeed no matter what. They were just broken by the circumstances. They both had to work and help support their families. They both had to leave school. So we we had very little. My father worked in a factory. My mother was the most incredible homemaker. Um, she did everything for us. And we were very well loved, but there were not a lot of resources. And there was not a lot of culture or any for that matter. There was no art in the house. There were no, there were books, but paperbacks. It was not a library. All those things I had to find. And I was very young when I realized that I needed these things. And where am I going to get them? What is it that I need? Why am I hungry? And I just found at school, I found there were certain teachers who found me, who helped me, teachers who helped me so enormously paying for art lessons out of their own pocket and just really stepping forward and saying, you have to keep going. You can't settle. You have to keep going. And I did. I kept going. And were you always interested in art and, you know, the natural world from an early age? Was that something you felt was innate um, within you? Certainly art. Drawing was so part of everything I did. And I drew all the time. And I was so serious about being an artist. When I was six, my parents had my uncle who had tried to be an artist in the depression and had failed because there was no money anywhere. And he had to give it up and get a job to support his family. Um, But they had him come and talk to me to tell me it wasn't a realistic thing for me to plan on doing when I was six. And and back in that time, people really only expected women, girls to get married. They they didn't expect you to have a career um, or certainly in my socioeconomic bracket. So I was really amazed that my parents took me that seriously, that they tried to get my (laughs) uncle to discourage me at six years old, but it didn't work. Yeah, tell me, what was the what was the impact of that? I mean, what did, did it strengthen your determination? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, as a as a child, you always feel like, well, I did anyway. That that I have much more stamina. I'm much more daring. I can. I could do this. You might not have been able to do it, but I could do this. You know, now that I'm older, I see that we all have different circumstances that allow us to propel ourselves forward. And they perhaps didn't have those circumstances. But at the time, it made me much older. I was absolutely determined. 
which, you know, was a blessing. I mean, it's that funny thing how sometimes, you know, something in the moment that seems like a great grievance or attack on us is, you know, you look back later and you think, wow, that was actually, that was potentially what gave me the, the strength and resolve and, you know, perseverance. Absolutely. It was, and it was definitely a struggle. Because, as I said, there weren't many resources. There was no money for me to go to college. And when I was in high school and getting toward my senior year and all my friends were going to college, I wasn't. And I didn't know what was going to happen to me. It was really frightening. I was terrified. And I had a boyfriend and his mother saw all of my drawings, which were up at the high school in an open house. And she saw them and said, these are really wonderful. Where is Linda going to college? And David said, oh, she can't go because her parents can't afford to send her. And his mother said, well, give her this phone number. And she wrote on a piece of paper the phone number of the head of painting and drawing at Carnegie. Well, it was Carnegie Tech at the time. Carnegie Institute of Technology, which is now Carnegie Mellon University, gave me this number, said, call this man and make an appointment to see him. And there was a pay phone in our high school. And every day I'd walk past the phone and I was terrified to call. I was so afraid. I didn't want to know that I wasn't good enough. I didn't want that judgment, but I knew that I had a narrow window of time. And I kept thinking, you're going to wake up at 40 years old. That was as old as I could imagine anybody <laughs> being. Um, and you won't have made the phone call. and You'll regret it forever. And so I made the call and I went and met with Lee Goldman was his name. Really wonderful man. Um, and he gave me a full scholarship to Carnegie Tech, which was really extraordinary. What was the first album that really shaped who you are and had a big impact? It was Thelonious Monk, and it was jazz. And I was really listening to jazz when I was in high school. After Bo Diddley, then this whole other sense of what music was. So. Round Midnight of Thelonious Monk was just incredible for me. The way he made so much music with so few notes, it was really incredible. I had listened to a lot of jazz in high school, but at a jazz club, another forbidden place we weren't allowed to go to. It was called Crawford's Grill, and it's really famous Pittsburgh world-class jazz club at the time, but it was run by bookies and there were a lot of unsavory characters. And I'd go there when I was 15, but, but I didn't ever have any albums um, until I was a freshman in college and um, Thelonious Monk fell into my hands. Perfect. So now we're going to take a listen to Introspection by Thelonious Monk from the record Round Midnight. Thank you. 
And that was the introspection track by Theolonius Monk from Round Midnight. And that was the album that Linda Fleming chose as the first record that really had a big impact on her. And you were describing, you know, this legendary jazz club in Pittsburgh called Crawford's Grill, um, where you'd go when you were 15 with your college boyfriend. Um, and they, you, you said, I think in one of the notes you sent me, that they had, you know, you'd see the best touring live jazz musicians in the 50s and 60s there. Oh, yeah, they had Horace Silver and John Coltrane. I can't remember all the names. There were so many, but they were so extraordinary. And it was, again, so new and so frightening and so unlike anything else that was being played on the radio or the records, suddenly albums were popular. It's hard to imagine these things. That was a long time ago that there weren't a lot of records. But, you know, I think Charlie Mingus played there and uh, Max Roach and Horace Silver. I, th- I said Sonny Rollins. I mean, just amazing people that I was able to hear live when I didn't even know what it was. But it, it was mesmerizing. And I imagine hearing such different kinds of music than, you know, what you could ever imagine. Um, Did it sort of open up this world of possibility of like, oh, there are all these other, you know, ways of of doing things out there. And, you know, what was the impact in terms of of you and shaping you? Well, as I was studying art and I'd been working steadily making things, Um, And then I started studying drawing in high school. And then when I was in college, I was practicing and studying and reading about various people and the various ways of making and the history of art making and how how various techniques came into being. Um, Those things were also exciting. And to be able to hear music that had that within it, to hear um, how music was it was like a painting to me. It was like brushstrokes. Certainly jazz was. You never knew where it was going to go until the whole picture was painted. And that was really exciting to me. So on the other end of the, of the spectrum to that, um, when did you first get interested in structures? That's really, I think, probably when we built the first dome at Libre. I'd always wanted to build, and I always would beg my father to let me use his tools. And he was very traditional. And since I was a girl, I shouldn't really be playing with those kinds of things. So, because I always thought I could build whatever I wanted or whatever I thought was possible. But I didn't get the opportunity to do that. And when I went to college, I was painting. And I was very interested in space and became also really interested in what was being written about space and physics and how matter and space are made of the same things. And that was very fascinating to me. So I started building structures that I would paint. The way color can read in space, the way the light reflects and you see it in a different part of space. You see two colors next to each other and one seems much more forward and the other seems more receded. Those were all really interesting to me and especially when applied to three-dimensional objects. So I started building things at Carnegie Tech and I had to work with the 
the set design students because their sculpture department really was almost non-existent. Uh, I'd gone in as a painter. And so when I started really switching to three dimensions, that didn't work. But it wasn't until we got to Libre and I built a model for a 40-foot geodesic dome when I was 22. And I cut all the wooden struts to the right length and to the right angle so we could build a 20-foot high, 40-foot diameter dome. And I was able to do that just innately. I never studied math. I know no math, but I use math all the time. Or I like to say I discover math all the time. <laughs> when I've actually seen very recently a um, a new old video um, or footage of you, you know, telling everyone what to do because you had um, newborn at the time. And so you're sort of ordering all the guys because they didn't know how to build it. Um, and it's this wonderful video that I guess you've just um, edited and put together of that first build on Libre. Exactly. That was so miraculous that that footage existed. I had forgotten that these two friends came from New York to help us build. And back then, we didn't have phones. People would write letters, but we never went to the post office. It was 12 miles down a very muddy road. So you really couldn't communicate. But we knew friends were coming to help. We didn't know when. And one of them was a filmmaker, and he filmed in 8 millimeter, I think, parts of that day in a very disrupted kind of 60s flickering way wonderfully and then they left and I had no recollection at all that that footage existed and it somehow turned up in New York and fell into my son's hands and he's a sound editor and he was able to then edit the footage and interview both me and his father and then mix those together and put it into the film. So now it, it's this completely amazing document of a moment in time that I thought was completely almost made up in my mind. And so just backtracking a little bit, um, you know, tell me about how Libre really came to be. You know, I know you met, um, you moved to New York in 1967 where you connected with a lot of these, you know, a lot of these other artists, including Dean Fleming. And yes. he opened up a community of like-minded artists, Mark de Suvro, Frosty Myers, people like that. So just tell me how that, you know, how quickly after moving to New York and meeting Dean and some of those other people, did this idea, this vi vision for Libre emerge? Dean and the artists you mentioned had a very seminal gallery, cooperative gallery called Park Place that they started. There were eight artists and eight really extraordinary backers who were art patrons in the true sense of the word, who really were not just buying work, but were trying to facilitate the making of work. And they had this wonderful gallery. It was the first gallery space in what would become Soho. And after four or five years, it became really well-known, really successful. So many artists had their first shows there. It was extraordinary. Um, was that where you had your first exhibition too? 
I did. I was in the last the last show there. I didn't have a one person show, but I had a huge work there, which was very, very exciting to me. And it was at a time where women were really not expected to accomplish much. Even in New York, there weren't a lot of role models, female artists at the time. In fact, the sculpture that I had, this wall sculpture that I made that was comprised of multiple parts, it was probably actually the first geometric thing I ever made. It was a relief rather than three-dimensional object hung on the wall. But there were probably 30 separate parts um, and they incorporated the wall in the work. And we were sitting at Max's Kansas City one evening, and I was the only woman there. And I was 21 at the time. And um, it was all these guys, the big guys. And they were talking about the show. And one of the artists there said, well, the only piece in the show that's worth anything is that big orange and white sculpture. That's really amazing. And I said, oh, that's mine. (laughs) And everybody turned and looked at me. And then there was silence. And then they went on to another subject. It was as if, how could this young girl make that thing? Maybe it's not so great. Or maybe I, you know, it, it was definitely a jolt to me that occurred. But Um, After Park Place became successful, the members decided they didn't want to just run a regular gallery. They liked it being more raw and stimulating for artists. So there was a big meeting and they decided that some of the members would go to the mountains in Colorado and look for land to create a place where artists could come from New York and make work and the artists who would remain would find a building in New York to create a place where artists could come and go back and forth between the country and the city. And so that was the beginning of the idea for Libre. And Dean and I and Tony Magar, who was an artist at Park Place, and his uh, then wife, Marilyn, drove west. And the story is quite long, so I won't go into the whole thing, but we ended up finding a piece of land with two other people, Peter Rabbit from Drop City and his wife, Judy. And we found a beautiful piece of land. We found a donor who said, you find the land and I'll buy it for you. These were the days back in the 60s. (laughs) People, People did things like that. We looked for land for months just on that promise. He didn't tell us how much he'd give us or what. Or if he was really serious or if he had just been really tired and wanting to go to bed. But we found a land and we went and told him. And he didn't even want to come and see it. He was living in New Mexico. He said, that's terrific. And he wrote us a check. And we folded it up and put it in our pocket and bought the land. And that's how we got the place. But we had had observed Drop City and seen Drop City was an extraordinary place that was started by artists. They wanted it to be a place for artists to make work. And a whole notion of droppings was they wanted to make works that were anonymous and out in the world. It wasn't drop as in drop acid. It was drop artworks around kind of anonymous artworks. But it became just haven for runaways. That moment in time where everybody was running away from home. 
And music really had a lot to do with that. The songs were telling everybody to, you know, put flowers in your hair and go to San Francisco. And on the way, stop at Drop City. That's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to make places where we could work, where we were all serious artists, writers, musicians, filmmakers in the beginning. And we wanted to make studios have separate buildings, mostly out of sight of each other, so you could be as alone as you wanted to be. And then we would get together and exchange ideas. So it wasn't a commune, but we own the land in common. That's something I always remembered um, about, you know, how it differed from other communes. And I'm sure it's why it's still thriving. You know, it's it's that sort of subtlety um, that is actually very key. And we talked a bit about how you got more structural, you know, with your work or more interested in structures. Um, but I think I read somewhere that you also always had a fascination with bridges. Oh, yes. Um, and how much that influenced your understanding of the nature of structures. Do you think that fascination with bridges sort of bled through into your work and also helped with the building of the geodesic dome and then obviously your your house later on? Oh, absolutely. And with my sculptures as well. Pittsburgh, where I was born and grew up, is a city of bridges, extraordinary bridges, old, old bridges. Roebling built a number of those bridges. And they're kind of space frame structures, steel built like the Eiffel Tower. They were very strong, but they weren't heavy. And Pittsburgh was a steel town. So there was steel everywhere. There were steel bridges. And I've always had this propensity to look at structures and try to figure out how they're made. Ever since I was a tiny kid, I'd go under the furniture and figure out how the table was put together. (laughs) The chairs, you know, when I was little enough to fit under the furniture, I just have always had that propensity. So I was always trying to figure out how bridges were made. And I was always fascinated by the amount of space they could cover, but also the amount of open space that was included in them. They weren't these monoliths, the ones in Pittsburgh and the ones that have influenced me. They were these open work steel structures. And that really fit in with my notion of space and matter and the similarity between the two. And I picture you under the sofa or under a chair um, and sort of looking at it from the inside out because that's a, a real theme of your work. It's as much about how it looks from the inside as it is from the outside. Yes, very much so. That's really important to me. The fact that you can see things simultaneously. You can see an object, you can see a form in front of you, you can see through that form, and you can also see inside of that form all at the same time. It's a simultaneity of multiple points of view. And that all keeps coming back to me in terms of my understanding of existence and how we make order out of the world around us. I like to try and play with that sense of not just seeing the curtain of things that are solid and there's the couch and there's the chair, but it's actually made up of all these spinning molecules and made up of all these materials from all these different places. And there's just so much 
complexity of information. And we always, by necessity, narrow it down to very, very simple things and call it a couch or a chair or a table. Um, And I'm really interested in making work that kind of questions that in some way. It doesn't tell you just what I told you, but it creates an experience where something else is going on, where you're looking at something in a different way than you normally would look at it. And how did building that, you know, first 40-foot geodesic dome at Libre expand this kind of thinking and ethos and your abilities? And just what were some of the challenges of of that? Well, I had a a torn piece of paper from a paper bag with decimal numbers written on it. And each one of those was a strut length that I got from one of the former members of Drop City named Clark Rickard, who is an amazing artist in his own right. And he just handed me this slip of paper and said, that's all you need. And I had no idea what to do, but I just started experimenting and I made a model. You take the diameter of the dome and you multiply that by these decimal points and you get the length of the strut. It's just completely ingenious. And Buckminster Fuller was really brilliant in so many ways. He was so eccentric. And I just had discovered him and was beginning to read about him. And the way everything fell into place and fit and everything depended on everything else. The dome, you can't take any part of it away. And as we were putting it together, I'd worked for months cutting all these boards and numbering them, stacking them, keeping them all in order. And when we started putting just the struts, just the two by fours and the hub, we started putting those up. It was all wiggly and it was like an amoeba almost as we got further up and it started leaning in, not being vertical any longer. The first rows were fine, but we got up to the top and we put the last piece in and the whole thing became rigid. The whole thing became completely symmetrical. Every form, every triangle became completely symmetrical. And I just said, it worked. I couldn't believe it. I didn't know until that moment, until it was all done. And that's a way that I make work still. There are all these parts and they come together. And I don't know until it's all put together that the structure will work. So that that became a blueprint for me for how it works. Amazing. And then also looking at location, um, had location always been something integral or influential in your work? Or was that something that came about more after founding Libre and spending time there? It came after founding Libre or when we first came to Colorado while we were looking for land. We lived in a house on a bridge, adobe house on a cement bridge over the Purgatory River. The land was owned by the Vigils. It's V-I-G-I-L. So we were doing a vigil in Purgatory <laughs> while we were looking for our land. And there was a lot of beautiful farmland or ranch land. So both Dean and I were making work in the landscape. And that was the first I'd ever considered working in the landscape was at that moment. So there was just a little of that. And then we got Libre. And then I worked 
in the landscape almost exclusively. I did some indoor work, but mostly I would work outside. But even after locating um, or, you know, getting your roots at Libre, you kept rotating between obviously Colorado, but then California, Manhattan, later on Nevada. Um, Was that always important to you, getting these different landscapes and environments as this kind of um, catalyst for your work? Not just the landscape. Colorado certainly is a landscape, but being in cultural centers, being around lots of other people. I had my fellow um, communards here, but over time we became not as incisively critical of each other's work or we knew each other too well in certain ways. So it was really important to go to the city and make work in the city. To be in New York, I would go to New York and everything I'd been doing would seem really eccentric and I would kind of hone it down and work for six months, seven months in the city. And then my work would seem like reflective of what was being done everywhere and just became too much of a reflection of a reflection. And then I'd need to come back to the the mountains and find that eccentricity again, find the strangeness. And so that kind of honing back and forth was really, really important. And and again, really fortunate. We had a friend, a sculptor, who had a really extraordinary space in the Fulton Fish Market, and we could use that studio. He was in Europe, and we could have it for free, and it was huge, huge. And we could come whenever we wanted and stay as long as we wanted. Uh, Incredibly generous. So we had, because it's very difficult to go from the country to the city financially. It's like you can live for almost nothing in the mountains. But then you go to the city and it's like a complete economic shock. So we would work minimally at jobs and make our work because we had no rent. So that was extraordinary. And I definitely see that just having that sort of cyclical migration between those different places, why that was important, because obviously it's, you know, preventing stagnation, but also getting those different perspectives and and environments to really see what you're doing. From the beginning, you were always spending part of your time in Libre and then part of your time elsewhere. Were there challenges in just keeping Libre going all this, you know, for now, how many years? Is it 53 years, did you say? It's 53 years, yes. There have always been people here. A number of people who joined us were not making art and were much more into farming. And this, you know, sort of evolved over time. And they maintain the place and keep the place going when we're, when I'm not here. There are several of us here who come and go, but a lot of people stay. And that's, you know, it's a little tricky in certain ways, but It's really important to me that I be able to kind of go to the city, soak up things like a sponge, and things come at you so quickly, and there's so much going on, and you're busy every second, and then come back here, and there's time to unpack all of that. There's time to observe this whole other kind of pace and the sky and how the sun moves and how the moon exists and what about the stars, those things which sound very simple, are really huge up here because 
we can see them so well, and we have time. We have time and space, which are two of the rarest things to have in all of life. And in that time and space, in your time and space um, at Libre, who are some of the most memorable people who came to visit or experiences that you had? God, there are so many. Um, Let's see. Well, one extraordinary person who came was a poet named Nanao Sakaki, who walked up the road with a backpack and shorts early, early on. And I think Gary Snyder had sent him. He and Gary Snyder were really close friends. And he lived in our cave. And he was trying to get everybody to be simple. And what he did for me was he had something he called free song. And it was just singing without any words, without any music, just what it feels like for sound to come out of your chest and and what it feels like in your nose and in your throat. And I can't sing. My father was a singer and I have no sense of pitch and I'm always off key. And I've always been embarrassed about that. And he just got me to sing. And I would sing all the time. And I developed a practice where I wanted to sing the sun up every day and sing the sun down every evening. And I started to do that. I made a pact with myself to do that until something extraordinary happened. And it went on for months and it was winter and my hair would freeze. And I had to train myself to wake up at a certain light where the sun hadn't come over the mountain yet. And I had to have enough time to put on my clothes, make it to the top of this hill where I could see the sun first peeking over the mountains. So I did that for over six months. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't go to town because I had to be back when the sun was (laughs) setting. Um, And in the winter, the roads would be too muddy and it was really difficult. But one morning, this is kind of insane, but it truly happened. One morning I was singing the sun up and looking out at the mountain and for just a nanosecond, I felt the planet turning, not the sun coming up, but the planet turning. And of course, I knew that, but I felt it. And I just panicked and grabbed the dirt with my fingers and thought about it. And the sensation went away immediately once I became aware of it. And of course, you know, because we live in in this motion, we don't know about it. But it took that kind of repetition, I think, that ritual for me to be able to feel it. And then that was the last time I ever saw the sun up. I thought, oh, that was the incredible thing. Now I can sleep. And I <laughs> never woke up again to sing the sun up. Um, but it was, anyway, he was extraordinary. And Allen Ginsberg was here, Peter Orlovsky, Gregory Corso, they, those madmen came here and stayed in our retreat cabin. Various artists have come here. Mark DeSouvereau's visited and helped build our dome. Frosty Myers, whom you mentioned, has been here. There's so many, many, many people have been here visiting. And the place was really very much a center. And we still have extraordinary people coming and staying and doing residencies here. I like to let 
certain artists and writers and thinkers use our studio when we're not here. And it keeps the place alive and it also spreads the incredible luxury of this place. Oh, well, that was a beautiful story. And I imagine just being there, um, obviously that was a, a very certain type of epiphany or moment or whatever you want to call it, but I imagine there are so many of those and I imagine they influenced your work in so many different ways, you know, and so deeply. Yes. Well, it's interesting in in that my work is not depictive of landscape. My work, you would never think of the landscape when you look at my work particularly. But the kind of space and time that are here and that are in our place in Nevada in the desert, um, allow me to think outside of normal linearity. And that's the place where my work dwells. And so I'm able to find it and then try to wrestle it into being, you know, as a maker, what that's like. You have an idea and it seems really great, but the minute you try to give substance to it, you run into all kinds of difficulties, um, just like being alive. So having the space to let the mind float, let ideas percolate, let whispers become insistent, that's really key to me for being able to make the work I make. And I think something I notice is definitely the the paradoxical nature of, you know, these very ephemeral ideas, as you said, but very durable structures, this this sort of delicacy of your work, but and yet it's incredibly robust. You know, I know you make a lot of the models now out of paper and then obviously construct the structures from steel. Um, and so I love that. And, you know, absolutely, when you look at your work, you wouldn't think of the landscape. And yet you would because of because of the motion, because of the undulations, because of the time space quality to it. Um, you know, you said that you were expected to make little, you know, delicate things being a woman and that, that you know, you were doing all of this um, work during a time, I mean, there's still a, a huge amount of sexism, but during a time that would have been incredibly difficult. And so do you think that in some ways, like, you know, the six-year-old hearing that they couldn't be an artist, um, <laughs> do you think there was an, an added almost determination to do the seemingly impossible? Yes, absolutely. But it was only the first of many times when I was questioned about the validity of what I'm doing. I was questioned here at Libre when we bought the land, we built our dome, we built our studio and home and wanted to then start working and new members would come and we always would help each other build. But it became very clear to me that I could be helping other people build their houses for the rest of my life. And I'd never be able to be in the studio because that was, to use the language of the time, a kind of ego art trip. And this was people's home and they needed a home and a roof over their head in the winter. And we had one chainsaw that we bought as a community and everybody would sign up for it. And I was making work with big timbers from the forest, trees that were standing dead. Um, large 
very simple lodgepole pines, so they're very straight. And I was signed up, and I, I needed the chainsaw. It was my week. My week was coming up. And one of our newer members needed it to finish doing the joists for his roof. And I said, no, <laughs> I need it to make my work. That's what I came here for. That's what I built my house for. That's what we started this place for. I need a chainsaw. I'm sorry, you'll have to wait until I'm done. And it was really hard to do that, but I did it. So in all your years of being an artist, a teacher, dean, all the different ways that you've taught in you know many different ways, um, sort of shared your wisdom, What's the one bit of advice that you find yourself giving your students the most often? To listen to the voice that they have, to try and find that whisper that I mentioned, that you're afraid to even say aloud, to find a thing that's your own and make a place for it, make a life that allows you to investigate that, structure your life around the things that you're really interested in and excited about. Don't let other forms get in the way. What is the music you'd send into space, Linda? Well, that was hard, but I love Nirvana. I discovered Nirvana late in life. I was not an early discoverer. You know, I was very interested in the punk scene in New York, and, but I thought it was something very soulful and very raw and very aggressive and extraordinary about Nirvana and their album from the muddy banks of the Wishka and smells like teen spirit. I thought that's what we should send into outer space. They should know what we're like down here. So now we're going to take a listen to smells like teen spirit by Nirvana. And that was Smells Like Teen Spirit from Nirvana's um, Muddy Banks of the Wish Car. And that was the uh, track that Linda Fleming would send into space as, you know, this raw, vibrant, angry um, expression of humanity, right? Yeah. And is there any other sentiment you'd like to send into space? Not so much for me what I would send into outer space because that's a very physical way of thinking about existence but what kind of communication would we have and what would we try to impart to other creatures or other beings of some kind without having to go into outer space and and that's a tricky one because you know we have all these extraordinary accomplishments of what we call accomplishments of humanity writings and music and art and I couldn't possibly live without, but I live within the shell of this world. And what would be universal? Being alive, what what that notion of being alive is and the complexity of that kind of stripped of all the trappings we put on it. How could we all be that one thing? That sounds 60s, but it's kind of how I feel. 
There's a lot of stuff that sounds 60s that's, you know, maybe actually just timeless. So talking about being alive and then imagining, you know, the absence of being alive, we've got to the sad part in the show when we have to imagine a world without you, a shell without you. And um, what would be the song that you'd have play at your memorial? I would have Gerard Kramer's Music of Rajasthan um, solo de flute double. Extraordinary chant of fluting. That these just these sounds uh, that are just breath, and the breath and the simplicity, but power and the way it builds just seems the perfect thing to honor a life is how ephemeral it is, how it's made with almost nothing. No electronics involved, no giant instruments, the simplest instrument of all time. It's the flute. So that would be my choice. Perfect. So now we're going to take a listen to Gerard Kramer's solo de flute double. And that was Gerard Kramer's solo de flute double, and that was the music that Linda would have play at her memorial. As you said, it's so alive with only this very delicate breath, which you know becomes a nice way of reflecting on life. Um, when I was listening to it, it's a piece I'd never heard before, and that's one of the wonderful things about doing this: is you hear music, you know, through someone else's eyes and ears and senses that you know maybe you don't know, and it's a very simple thing, but I realized that, you know, breath and death, um, mm. they rhyme. Yeah, they do. And in some ways, you know, death is the opposite of, of breath because I don't think death is the opposite of life, really. Um, you know, I think we probably exist in just another form, but without our breathing mechanism. Um, so how do you, you know, have you thought at all about, I know it's a morbid question, but have you spent much time contemplating your death, Linda? Well, I've been contemplating my death since I was a tiny child. I think every, I, I don't know, I imagine everybody thinks the way I think. So I think everybody thinks that way. <laughs> I do. <laughs> but um, I've always thought about what it would be like to not be here and would there be anything here? Um, it, it's impossible to imagine that there would be anything without me. And, and we all feel that way. I was talking to students one time in class and we were talking about somebody's work and I was saying something about it. And they, this really interesting conversation evolved and somebody said, that's so extraordinary. I've never talked about that before. And I said, well, sometimes I think I just made you all up so I could have the conversations I want to have. And 
I just all got really startled and looked at me. <laughs> like, Wait a minute. You're supposed to be catering to me. That wasn't my thought. There's a wonderful Oliver Sacks line um, in that similar vein, which is we speak not to tell others what we think, but to tell ourselves. I mean, I think it's both, but there's something quite wonderful about that as well. And so, you know, when you are so prolific as you are and your work is so commanding, um, is it nice to think that there's this durable legacy of work that isn't going to get accidentally deleted or lost in the digital age? It definitely think about that and thought about it. I think about it as my work and the materials I've used evolved. I used to work with wood. That was my favorite material. I love wood. And I'm now putting together all my archives. And the first 20 years of my work doesn't exist. It's gone. You know, the things that were outdoors, they're just going back into the land, which is wonderful. But I wish they were around. And some of them I have the remains around. Um, but then I started evolving, working with stronger materials. And as as you mentioned, the notion that women only work in ephemeral materials, and there's very little work of women from history. I mean, this is historic. I don't mean now women work in everything. But when you try to look for the artwork of women, there just isn't much. And women were meant to be sewing and embroidering and making lace and beautiful things and those things influence the work I make and lace and sewing and putting panels together and creating structures uh, are very much things that I think about but I make them in these very durable materials but of course we live in a time where who knows what's durable who knows what's going to be here we have conflagrations and floods and just madness. So I just try to work the way I enjoy working with materials that I think will be here for a while. And and that excites me. What is the album that you would pass on to the next generation? I love John Coltrane. I'm not alone in this. And his album, Live at the Village Vanguard, is just a revelation to me always. And he's able to get sounds from his saxophone in ways that things that I've never um, dreamed of. And India that's on that album is really incredible to me. And I would love for generations to come to be able to hear that. Perfect. So we're going to end in just a few moments with that track. Um, but first, Linda, what do you see for, you know, Libre going forward? Mm, that's a big question that I have, that we all have. We're all of a similar age. Our children are members and they care very much about this place, but they don't live here. They live all over the city and world and are very engaged in their lives in, in their careers. So they aren't going to come here and live. I think one of the things that we're all thinking about is having this be a residency for various artists to come and go from. The original idea, the idea that we started it with in the first place, that really has always been what's governed what I do. But many other people 
it became their home and only place they wanted to be and didn't want to go anywhere else. And that's really important, too, to be able to have people here tending the land and being the kind of mainstay. It allows me and people like me the luxury of coming and going. So that would be my dream of what this land would be, that it would remain free. It would remain uh, a place to come and think and make and communicate what you think and make with other people and bring that sense of of bigness, uh, that sense of time and space into form that can be shared. And what is the thread that connects all of your orange juice for the air choices? I think um, it's complicated in certain ways, but it's that each of those pieces of music went against the established structure of how you were supposed to behave in the world. Each found a way to express itself, found a way to unfold, unfurl. You know, I think of India and just those sounds coming out. It's like smoke. It doesn't have to be a certain length. It doesn't have to be of a certain criteria. It's just all of these songs, all of these pieces of music come from the need to hear that sound. I love it. I also love there's now another paradox, structures and anti-structures that you seem to gravitate towards. Yes. So thinking about art and humanity today, big question. What do you think we've gained and what do you think we've lost? And actually, when you were describing Libre and how you see it going forward, I feel like we need more Libres. You know, we need more spaces where we can come together and have conversations and share ideas, bringing back those those times and spaces to really to really commune and to really yeah. expand. I think what we've lost is the ability to have firsthand experiences, and and I mean that in music and in art making and in writing and storytelling that we depend on experts. You want to hear music? Put on your earphones and listen to music. You don't make music. You do, of course, but most people don't. Most people get the best person, the person they love, the music they love, and I'm so grateful to have that. But they don't create music. People don't make things as much as they did. And I think that it's not that we need a bunch of craftspeople in the world. It's just the experience of actually doing, the experience of actually bringing something into being is so extraordinary and so much for me what being alive is about. That vicarious experiences don't come close to giving that power and the, the kind of thrill of actually making. So I think that that sense of direct experience, how do you impart that I'm completely attached to my devices. I love my device. I love to look things up right now. I know the answer. It's really exciting to me to be able to know those things. But I spend way too much time on it. And I lived in the other world for most of my life. And very few people alive will have had that experience. And we came to Libre and we built everything. And we had all the time in the world. And we had no radio or TV. We had nothing. We had no telephone. We made our own entertainment. We had huge productions. We would have all day productions 
that would last into the night and include dinner and a show. And everybody would act and um, create characters and help paint the sets and costumes. It was really elaborate. We were playing at being adults, and that was very exciting. And that sense of play, I think, is really important. It's hard to maintain over time. But also in there, there's something that I saw in that video um, that you shared that's really also so wonderful and important, which is you were connected with every aspect of living in that environment. Yes. Every sort of part of that from you know, energy and power and light and, you know, resources and waste and all of these things that we now don't really see or we're disconnected from. So that that sense of being so interconnected with your environment, which you were, um, also seems like something we've got completely detached from. Yeah, very much so. Where does the water come from? We had to haul water in five-gallon buckets from the stream. We had no water system. You'd get to know how much water you use when you have to carry it. And people all over the world carry water. But we take for granted that you just turn on the spigot and there it is. And we learned that. We learned about time and seasons and the way that there are never two sunsets that are the same. The sun's always moving. It's a different time of the year. The clouds are different. Same for the moonrise and the the seasons. All those things that I never even saw because I lived in a polluted city. I was born in Pittsburgh and there, there were no stars. I thought those were only at the planetarium where they were projected on the screen. You couldn't see them. So being here and, you know, being able to firsthand experience those things, I think what what was really, truly incredible to me, because the time in my life when I came here and the ability to start from nothing, from scratch, no structures, no roads, no, no electricity, no piped water, anything, we were able to build what we could, what, what we wanted, but restricted by what we could afford and what we could actually physically do. So this was what Libre is, what we were able to accomplish. And it's not, as I like to say, an example to people about how to live with others and how to live a righteous life. It's not any of that. It's been an experience for me of how to be alive and how to create a life I wanted to live. And I'm so grateful to have had it. That's amazing to me. And very last question, Linda, what is it that you hope to leave behind with all the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do? Hmm. Funnily enough, I think some of the most interesting and important things that I will leave behind are in the minds of some of my students. And I loved teaching as long as I did it. But there were obviously times when I really, really, really wanted to be in the studio. And the most important thing to me was being in the studio. And I think without that, I could not be a teacher worth anything. But to hear how people are moving forward with ideas, how one gives courage, I think that's the only thing that you do when you teach. Of course, you can, you can show people techniques, etc. But for me, the most important thing was to model 
what it's like to do that, to have a life that is based on making and how that gives people courage to do it. If I could do it, anybody could do it, right? That to me is a legacy. And I love that there will be these strange objects around that people hopefully will be able to see and try to make some sense of in the future. Wonderful. Well, Linda, now we're going to um, play out with John Coltrane's India from the album Live at the Village Vanguard. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you again for joining us and sharing your wonderful Orange Juice for the Year choices, but also something of your um, amazing spirit and life and ethos. Thank you, Beatty. It's been a pleasure. Mm-hmm. 